Our Old Testament scripture reading is Zechariah chapter 8. I have a couple of goals for our sermon this morning. Zechariah chapter 8 is the text for our sermon. I've chosen this in connection with it being Pentecost Sunday. Some of you will remember in 2019, we had a series in the book of Zechariah, and so of course I preached on this passage then. But this morning, we come to this text with a, a particular angle, a particular way we're looking at it, and that is particularly how it is fulfilled in the event of the sending of the Holy Spirit, which you're going to read about in a moment from Acts chapter 2. That's my first goal. Reading this text as fulfilled at Pentecost. A second goal. I am aware that I think our time in Ephesians has been fairly challenging. That has been the goal of it. That We've been in a stretch of Ephesians where it can feel like we have sort of left behind all of the announcement of the gospel at the beginning of the text. And so many of the ways that Ephesians has been challenging us can feel difficult. Now, I do believe we have clearly seen the gospel running through all of it the whole time. But this morning, I want us to sort of pause in that mode of hearing God's word with the goal of simply being energized, encouraged, strengthened for who we are called to be as a church of Jesus Christ. And so we can look at it this way. Ephesians has been challenging us. Here from Zechariah chapter 8, we're getting a, a boost, a, an energy charge to help to continue to live that life that Ephesians has been calling us to. With that expectation, that goal in mind as we come to God's word, we read Zechariah chapter 8. These words coming to Israel in exile, pointing forward to God's promised future. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in, the, in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor." But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. 
And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Acts 2, verses 1 through 21. Acts 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. 
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your blessing upon the preaching of your word this morning among your gathered church. Your word is full of promises of what your word does, of it being powerful and effective, about being a means by which you do and accomplish things among your people. But even as we stand upon those promises, we also humbly acknowledge that this is never something that we control or manipulate by our ability, by our efforts. And so we humbly pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit so that your word might be effective as you have promised, not by our controlling it, but by your spirit freely working among us. We offer this prayer with humility as we have done at the beginning of our worship, as we will again do at the Lord's Supper with confidence in what you have promised. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said before our scripture reading, we have two goals, that is to hear Zechariah chapter 8 as shining light for us on what happened at Pentecost, and to do so in a way that would strengthen and encourage us as a congregation. I want to begin with words from Zechariah 8 verse 13. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Every one of us in the course of the Christian life will come to times where it is tempted, tempting to give in to fear, tempting to give in to weakness, to stop seeking, to persevere. This is a temptation we face not just as individuals, not just as families, but also in our life together as a congregation. And so I want to encourage us this morning with the beautiful vision that Zechariah sets before us of what God is doing in our midst as a church. We do this in terms of Pentecost in particular. We just read the account from Acts chapter 2 of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the disciples, of the disciples then speaking in the languages of all those who were gathered there, and then as Acts 2 goes on to tell us, the church growing. This was the beginning of the mission of the church. But when I raise the question of Pentecost and the sending of the Holy Spirit, My guess is that many of us then bring to mind questions about those special gifts of the Holy Spirit that we just saw in Acts chapter 2. We know there are many evangelical Christians who think we ought to still be pursuing those sorts of gifts, and that raises all sorts of interesting questions for us. I'm not going to answer any of those questions. They are helpful, they're interesting. The Reformed tradition is convinced that those special gifts ceased after the time of the apostles when the scriptures were complete, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. 
Part of the problem of those questions is they become too narrowly focused on individual experience and on very particular debates. But what is happening at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the center point, the middle point of the entire story of the Bible, of the entire story of the world. It is the inauguration of the church's mission in a way that lasts to this day for the life of the church. And so when we say what happens when the Spirit is poured out, this is not just about the individual question of individual experience. It is about every part of the church's life. Everything about who we are, all that we do as a church, being powered and energized by the Spirit. That is what I want to persuade us of this morning from Zechariah chapter 8. And I am sorry, sound crew, I promised you I wasn't going to do this again. I feel way too loud. It's making me afraid to speak loudly. So if I can get turned down just a little bit, I will talk more loudly to make up for it. I promise. All right, as we come to Zechariah chapter 8, we are hearing this text as a promise given to Israel, fulfilled in Christ, and that then shapes the life of the church. And we're going to look at it in those three steps. A promise given to Israel, fulfilled in Christ, and then shaping the life of the church. First, Zechariah chapter 8 as a promise given to Israel. For these words to make any sense to us, we need to remember the story up to this point. And the story is that Israel, because of their sin, was dragged off into exile. Jerusalem, the temple, were destroyed. Israel is now living in a foreign land. At the time of Zechariah, this is the time of some are returning and the prophets are giving promises of this return happening. That the theme of Zechariah is that Israel will be restored from exile. So here is the center, the heart of what is going on. Israel has received judgment. God is saying, you are going to come back from from exile. Why does all of that matter to us? Well, we have to remember what was the purpose of Israel. Why was there ever such a thing as the story of Israel? Why did God call Abraham? Why did he call Isaac and Jacob? Why did he bring them to the promised land? What was the point to any of it? Well, Zechariah 8 alludes to this. In fact, what Zechariah is worried about, concerned about, is that if Israel goes into exile, that's not just bad for Israel. That is bad for the whole plan of what God was going to do through Israel. Listen to verse 13. What is happening in this verse is God is saying to Israel, I'm going to save you. That's the basic point. I'm saving you from exile. But listen to the the, the point, the payoff, the reason this matters. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not and let your hands be strong. What does God say was the point? Right in the middle of that verse, he says, I'm going to save you. But he contrasts that with two things. You have become a byword of cursing among the nations. And when I save you, you are going to be a blessing. This is echoing all the way back to what God said said to Abraham when he called him. At the very beginning of Israel's story, he said, Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the way to read the Old Testament scriptures. It is God's plan that through Israel, he would save all the nations of the world. Through Israel, he was going to restore his creation, bring the Savior who would save all of the nations. When Israel failed, when they went into exile, 
that story is what is at stake. It's, it's as though, not as though it is the case, but in terms of the way you might summarize the story, Israel was called to be the hero of the story that would save the whole world, and Israel failed to do that. Israel was called to be the ones who would be a blessing to the nations, and instead, they were brought into exile by the nations. So, when God, for example, left the temple in Jerusalem as a sign of judgment, that wasn't just bad for Israel. God dwelling in Israel was God's plan, His way He was going to then dwell in the whole world. God was dwelling in Israel as part of his plan to rescue all of us from all the nations. And so when God left Israel, that is what was at stake. Was anyone going to be blessed? Was God's plan to save going to work? Was it going to be accomplished? Would God ever undo the curse? Would God defeat sickness and death? Would the dragon, the serpent of the Garden of Eden, would it win the battle? Would evil have the victory? That is what is at stake. That whole story from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to God's promised future, when Israel became a byword of cursing instead of a blessing. So God comes to Israel and says, I'm not going to let that story fail. God comes to Israel and says, I am going to save the nations through you. He says, there is a day coming when you will no longer be a byword of cursing, but you will be a blessing. And now do you sense how that changes how you hear those words? When he said that to Israel, he had in mind you. When he said to Israel, you will be a blessing, what he meant was, this would one day happen. That people from the nations on the other side of the globe would gather together in fellowship with the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth. That story is what is at stake. Now, what we want to hear from this text in particular, because there are many passages in the prophets that say this, it's a main theme in the prophets. One day, Israel, you will bless the nations just like I always said. We want to hear from Zechariah 8 what God in particular says would happen when this happens. So they're telling Israel to look forward to the future. Zechariah is telling Israel to look forward to the future. What is that future? Well, there are four things in particular that God promised. This was a long chapter, and so I want to give you these four things in quick succession so you can see the big picture. What does God say will happen? First, God will return to Israel. Verses 2 and 3, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. Verse 3, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. The first promise, one day God has left, one day God will return to his people. The second promise, life as it is meant to be will be restored. You notice in the midst of all of these grand themes, God is going to return, he's going to rescue, Israel will be a blessing to the nations You get this very ordinary picture. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. What is the point to that picture? Well, there's a lot of things, but it's simply a picture of life being good, of there being safety and prosperity, of the generations dwelling together in fellowship, Later on, he refers to workers receiving their wages. He speaks of vines being fruitful. 
all of these are images of life restored. So first promise, God will return. Second, people will live the way they're meant to live. Life will be good. Third, we already said this one, Israel will be a blessing to the nations. Verse 13, I will, you shall be a blessing. And then at the end of the passage, this is why we're reading it uh, this morning, the end of the passage, verse 21, the inhabitants of one city shall say to another, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. And Zechariah says there's going to come a day when people from all the cities of the world will say, let's go seek the Lord at Jerusalem. And then the beautiful picture of verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. God's promise all along was the bringing in of the nations. Not a plan B, not something he chose to do later. It was always the goal through Israel. And then finally, the fourth blessing. We need some context for this one. Chapter 7 of Zechariah begins with a question saying, are we all supposed to keep fasting? Are we still mourning? Are we still grieving because of exile? And the Lord says, yes, you, you're, fasting is appropriate now. But he says, the day is coming when that will change. And so verse 19, you get this list of fasts. The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, of the tenth. He says, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. God will return. Life will be restored. The nations will be brought in and there will be feasting instead of fasting. That was God's promise. Now you know where this is going. I've already told you how this is fulfilled in Christ. But I want you to pause here for a moment. One of the assumptions running through Zechariah in, in the way of the tone of the passage, the way it sounds, is that all of life, all of history, all of reality is driven by God's promises. That every moment of what happens is driven by God's word. And Zechariah 8, in a way we can separate even from the distinct things it says, and we're going to enjoy that together in a moment, but even in very general terms, is saying, do not fear. What God has spoken is what is driving and determining everything. And every one of us this morning needs that reminder. All right, and you get what I'm trying to say here. In, in a way that's distinguishable from the specific promise being made. We need the reminder of how God's word is speaking here. Remember... Everything is driven by God's word of promise. And this chapter in particular is aware that that is difficult. It is aware that there are times where over the long haul, over the challenge of, of persevering in the way of clinging to those promises over time, over an entire lifetime, over the arc of life, through, there's times where it's easy and then there's times where it's easy to forget that it was ever easy at all. And God's word is well aware of this reality. The language of verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight? Declares the Lord of hosts. What is the point there? Marvelous meaning, no way that can happen. It's too much. 
And he says, sure, if it's going to be marvelous in the eyes of certain people, I understand what I'm promising you, it seems like too much. But remember, just because it's marvelous in the eyes of ordinary people does not mean it is marvelous in the eyes of God, meaning it is not too much for him. He is able to do what to us seems impossible. And the whole tone, the mode of speaking in Zechariah 8 is intended to bolster, strengthen, encourage Israel in that confidence. Zechariah is not promising them anything new. These are all things you could have known on the basis of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's all the promises that go all the way back then. He's saying, remember, God will do what he has promised. And sometimes it's that message that we need even more than the specific thing being promised. But to the specific thing. Second, these promises given to Israel in Zechariah 8 are fulfilled well, actually, we have to be careful. What's the, the heading for point two is fulfilled in Christ. But actually, these things all happened ish before Christ. And the ish is really key. All of the promise of being restored from exile happened, but in a way that was very clear to Israel was only partial. All the things happened, going back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, all of these glorious things happened, but in a way where they looked around and said, man, this is not like the way it sounded in Zechariah chapter 8, where they would look around and had a sense that something more is needed. And that more came to be focused on the hope, the expectation of the Messiah who would come, of the coming of the kingdom of God. That more came to be focused on the hope of God truly dwelling in Israel in a way that transformed the world. So what happened was, Everything Zechariah said was fulfilled. Faithful Israelites knew, eh, sort of, like not entirely fulfilled. And they, they latched onto themes that were throughout the prophets. God returning to Israel. One day the Messiah will come. The kingdom of God will come. The nations will be brought in. And all of that came to be focused on hoping for the Messiah and the kingdom. So, When in Matthew's gospel, we are told that Jesus began his ministry proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, one of the really fun things about Matthew's gospel is Matthew never says a word explaining what kingdom means. Why? Because he's assuming you have all the Old Testament scriptures, and what kingdom means is everything we have been talking about so far this morning. When Jesus said, I bring the good news of the kingdom, he was saying, Everything God had promised, which had come to be focused on the kingdom, was being brought in him. And that includes Zechariah chapter 8. So, let's do this. What were those four things we said were the promises in Zechariah chapter 8? God would return to Israel. This is what happened in a way that was surprising, yet fulfilled everything in Christ. That in Christ, God returned to Israel. And what what is so glorious about the way that happened is that even in the hopes of Israel, those themes had started to converge. The Messiah, God returning. Well, which is it? So many texts, it feels like it's going to be both somehow. This is who Christ was, that in the Messiah, by the Spirit, God had come to Israel. And then, in a way, vindicated by his death and resurrection, it was clear that this was the incarnation. God himself, the creator God, present among his people. What was the second thing Zechariah 8 promised? Restoring life as it is meant to be. Jesus comes as the one 
who fulfills the law, who lived it perfectly. As the second Adam, where Adam failed being unfaithful, Jesus comes as the second Adam being faithful. On the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it clear he is giving this life to his people. He's describing not something new, but the fulfillment, the completing of the life God was always intending to give his people. And then when he pours out his Holy Spirit, he gives to his church life as it was created to be. I was reminded as I was reading Zechariah chapter 8 of how I arrived at this passage in the first place. There is the reference in verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. All right, so I plan sermons way in advance. And I often will put placeholders. Okay, okay, Nick, remember you're doing this text at this time. And sometimes I forget why I put it there. And so we came to Pentecost. Oh, I'm doing Zechariah 8 for Pentecost. Okay. Oh, it's clear there's all these themes of nations being included. Totally makes sense. But as I was reading the text this morning, I remembered how I got here. In Ephesians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul says, let each one speak the truth to his neighbor as the life of the church, he says that in a way, in the wording of it, that clearly alludes to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah says, here is what the restored life of God's people will be. These are the things you shall do. Verse 16, speak the truth to one another. And what Paul is saying is that now you in the church live that life that Zechariah promised. Okay, well, how did we get there? Remember, what are the three things Zechariah promised? The return of God to Israel. That's Jesus, the incarnation. Restoring life as it's meant to be, even in this detail of loving the truth and speaking the truth to each other. Jesus gives his church that life. What was the third promise? Blessing to the nations. The inclusion of the nations. It is Jesus who then at the end of his ministry says, go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. People from every tongue, from every nation of the world are then to be called to faith in Israel's God through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is then the true son of Abraham, the one who enables Israel to be a blessing to the nations. And then what is the fourth promise? Changing from fasting to feasting. Remember, there was even a conversation in the Gospels where some come to Jesus and say, why John's disciples fasted? Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Why are you known for feasting? And one of the things he says is that that is a signal of the presence of the kingdom, that the Messiah is here, the one Israel had looked forward to. And so from the wedding at Cana, his miracle, to that eating and drinking with his disciples, to giving his church the Lord's Supper, it, with all the imagery of festivity and celebration, Jesus brings that life of feasting that Zechariah 8 promised. All four of those main themes are accomplished, done, in Christ. Now, what's the third point we're headed toward? He then gives that life to his church. But again, let's pause for a moment. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of Christ. This is the wonder and the joy of who he is, that all of those themes 
perfectly converged in him in a way that surprised, meaning not what everyone was looking for. It did not simply fulfill what people were already saying they wanted, but in a way that then went back and fulfilled everything beyond what anyone wanted, in a way that drew together every thread and theme and hope and expectation and pleading of God's people through the ages. Jesus accomplished all of it. This is what he has done for you, that he has accomplished the fulfillment of all of those promises to Israel. By his death and resurrection, at the cost of his own blood, he defeated sin and death and hell and evil so that God's plan to rescue the nations through Israel might be fulfilled. He did this for you as the creatures that he loved, as the church that he is gathering. But remember that first phrase, as the creatures that he loves. When God tells Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is motivated by his desire to rescue his lost creation. With the tone, the the orientation being, he's not going to let any of those nations go. He's after all of them to bring them in, to restore them to fellowship with him. So that it is on the basis of that promise all the way back in Genesis 12, that Israel will be a blessing to the nations, that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. God loves the world because it is his creation. He loves his creatures. And it is what he has done for you most particularly as the church he has gathered. When Jesus came in every moment of his ministry to his suffering and death, to his resurrection, ascension, sending of the Spirit, all of it had you in mind. This is part of the genius, isn't it, of the emphases of Reformed theology in particular, that all along, at every moment in that story, he had in mind his grace being effective for you being restored to fellowship with him. And part of the, you know, I I know I'm asking you to do a lot of work this morning, connecting Zechariah 8 to Acts chapter 2. I know it's work. Why? Why do all of that work? Do you sense the depth then, the solidity, the foundation beneath God's grace, the announcement of his grace for you in particular and your faith in particular? That the grandness of the story is not in competition with the personalness of what God is doing, but rather it is the great foundation, the great certainty, the great confidence driving all of those promises that we then look to by faith. All of this was what God in Christ was doing for you as his creatures, for you as his church. Finally this morning, all of that then flows into the life of the church. We have to do this one more time. The four main blessings in Zechariah chapter 8. What was the first promise? The presence of God returning to Israel. We say it's fulfilled in Jesus, as in the incarnation, as God with us. But now, what is it that happens? After Jesus ascends into heaven and the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem, but the Spirit is poured out. That was the announcement that what Zechariah 8 promised was happening. That God would dwell with his people. And he was dwelling with his people as part of that plan to restore his creation. To dwell in his creation and to bring his creatures to himself. And so when that spirit is poured out, 
Peter, when he's preaching, right away goes to the Old Testament prophets. He speaks of Joel, but of course it's not just Joel. The New Testament is full of all of these allusions to God's promises. And that remains God's promise for you. The Spirit poured out. What was the second one? The restoring of life as it's meant to be. At the end of Acts chapter 2, we have the church living together, fellowship together, selling their possessions to help each other. What is this but the announcement that when the Spirit is poured out, God restores life? What was the third promise? The nations being brought in. Well, at that very moment when, when the Spirit is poured out, what is the point? To the people there from all these different nations, hearing the mighty acts of God, the wonderful works of God, proclaimed in their own language. What is the point? The point is now the gospel is going to the nations. That now the church will be made up of people from every nation of the world. And that turning point is what is being announced when that gift of tongues is given. All sorts of ways you can debate how the gift may or may not be expressed today. The point though, the main point then, was that it was that turning point of the gospel going to the nations. What was the fourth promise? Feasting, moving from fasting to feasting. And so at the end of Acts chapter 2, you have the church gathered together around the apostles' teaching and the breaking of the bread, meaning the Lord's Supper, and we are told breaking bread in each other's homes, a life of fellowship, of sharing meals together. That is the declaration that what Zechariah proclaimed of moving from fasting to feasting has been accomplished. Brothers and sisters, gathered church of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our life. This is what God is doing in and through his church, what he has been doing for thousands of years and what he will do until Christ returns. And it is a life surrounded by or founded upon God's mission to save the nations of the world. I want us to luxuriate in this announcement of God's grace. We ought to celebrate this, simply delight in it. All of us have things in our lives right now that make it hard to do this. And God's announcement of his promises is meant to, to, to break through all of that, to grab us in the midst of it and say, this is who God is for you. I, am, I don't think we appreciate enough. And I always say things too carefully. None of us appreciate enough the lavishness of God's grace. And we must, we need to grow in this, delight in this. Are you okay with the simplicity of the end of the words of Joel that Peter quoted in Acts chapter 2 when he said, and it will come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you okay with just how lavish that is? We want to add and memorize the catechism. We want to add and agree with me on all points of theology. We want to add, add all sorts of stuff. Now, Pastor Nick doesn't think theology matters. No, that's not what I'm saying here. Obviously, all of that stuff matters. But at the heart of it, at the center of it, is the announcement with such clarity that God's motive, what he is doing in the world, is bringing about the time, the time we are living in now, where anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God delights in, he desires, he is calling forth simply that calling upon him. And brothers and sisters, there are times in the Christian life, you see, as I'm saying this, 
It feels like I'm talking about how we view people out there, right? Mission. How do we talk about mission? You need this confidence. There are times where theological questions arise, doubts and uncertainties in the Christian life, ways of living that, that call, cause us to fear. Is the Spirit ever even doing anything? All sorts of things that are fearful in this way. And you must have at the center that it's not about you having your theology figured out. It's not you having your piety perfectly figured out. It's not you accomplishing, earning, deserving anything in any way, shape, or form. It is you clinging, clinging to the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Indeed, that same clarity is in Zechariah chapter 8. What is God saying is going to happen one day? Many peoples and strong nations, verse 22, shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Right? What, is, what is the glorious day he sets before us? Is people from all the nations entreating, pleading for, crying out for the favor of the Lord. That's not a posture we should ever grow out of. That simple calling on God, calling on the Creator, made known in Christ, is a posture we should never grow past, but that should always remain at the heart of how we relate to the Lord. And as we do that, we are then given this life. You see, the, the, what was promised in Zechariah chapter 8 is now the time we are living in. You are living in the future that Israel thought was unthinkably glorious. You're already there. Now, there's more to come, we know that, but you're in that future that God promised Israel. The Spirit has been poured out. God is with us by the Spirit. Now, I've already alluded twice. There's all sorts of debates about how that ought to look. Fine. Let us all agree that we need a revived awareness of the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We need a revived delight in the work of the Holy Spirit through the ordinary means of grace, through word and sacrament on the Lord's day, through our fellowship together as God's people, through our speaking to one another along the way of persevering in the path of wisdom. In all of this, all of it is charged with the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. And we gather on the Lord's day, then eager for that ministry to be received. That what happens on the Lord's day is the Spirit's ministry among us, freely as a gift of His grace. This is something we desperately need to recover. It is too easy to view what we're doing as simply abstract or intellectual or a thinky thing. The Spirit is at work supernaturally, powerfully, through the very ordinary things that we do together as God's people. We are called to live as that new humanity in Christ. You see, this is what is energizing all of that difficult stuff Ephesians is challenging us with. Everything Paul says about how we are to live is driven by, energized by, the announcement that Zechariah 8 is being, being fulfilled. God said the day is coming where he's going to give life as it's meant to be. We are called to live as part of that. We're to do all of that as part of our mission you live in the time of the nations being brought in, and we must think of ourselves as a church as existing for the sake of that mission. You are here as the fulfillment of God's promise that his people would be a blessing. That means it is our calling to be a blessing. 
And as I've said a million times, this does not mean that let's come up with a bunch of evangelism programs. It means that you, in who you are, in every moment of your living as the church of Jesus Christ, every ordinary place in life, you exist as light in a dark world. You exist as witnesses on mission in every moment. Mission is not what we do, first of all. It's who we are. And then, what was the fourth promise again? Feasting. Yes. God told Israel that one of the marks of that great future time would be the festivity of his people. And so the church, with the Lord's Supper at the center and all of its imagery of festivity, is then called to be a festive people in a way that testifies to the reality of what God has done. And to do so, knowing that we remain in an in-between time. We said Israel would have said, yes, it's fulfilled-ish. We still feel the same way sometimes. There remains more. The perfection of God's dwelling with us. The perfection of broken bodies fixed, broken relationships restored. The perfection of the nations brought in and the world no longer opposing God's people. And there are many ways in which you right now are tempted to let go of that promise and to forget it, to turn toward, live towards something else. And so the words of Zechariah 8 comes to us all the same. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word, we do pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit so that we might embrace and live this life as your gathered church. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.